really the first web search engines were download the web and then find them. That was it, right? There was no spam. There was very little unsafe content. You know, for example, oh, is there a whole lot of porn back in the day? Well, occasionally people would find stuff that grad students had kind of hidden away, but, but by and largely, no. The biggest problem with early day web search engines was occasionally people would find things like at UW, we had a, a website that uh, provided all the census data, which usually filled up people's hard drives if they hit that. Another one is somebody, a grad student, made a game it's called Hunt the Wumpus, where you kind of move from room to room to room. And if you hear a wumpus, you try to shoot an arrow into the right room. And otherwise, if you walk into a room with a wumpus, you die. So the web spiders would play Hunt the Wumpus. They don't know what's a real page versus a game. So those would be kind of the humorous problems you'd have with the early days. But the model of download the web, a uh, decently powered, but still like desktop class computer was, was what we did. Yes, web search has come a long way from the early days when search engine spiders would get stuck playing Hunt the Wumpus. <laughs> In fact, these days, most people don't give search much thought. We go to Google, type what we're looking for, and before we're even done typing, Google seems to have figured out, as if by magic, exactly what we wanted to search for. That wasn't always the case. There was a lot of trial and error and iteration in the search industry before Google claimed its throne. And the man you just heard talking was one of the early experimenters. His name is Eric Selberg, and he created Metacrawler, the early web's most popular meta search engine. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Webmasters, the podcast that explores entrepreneurship by talking with some of the internet's most successful and impactful innovators. My name is Aaron Dinan. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I, like all of you, often use web search engines. Well, not really search engines, basically just Google. But like some of you, I also remember a time before Google when search wasn't nearly as streamlined. In those early days, we'd all bounce around between different search engines as we tried to find things online. And I'll never forget the moment when I was looking over my big brother's shoulder as he opened up a search engine I hadn't seen before. It was called Metacrawler. What's this? I asked him. And he nonchalantly replied, what, Metacrawler? Oh, it's a search engine that searches other search engines. That's right, a search engine that searches other search engines, otherwise known as a meta search engine. It's a concept that's totally unnecessary in the post-Google takeover of the world, but it was a godsend on the early web. In this episode, we're gonna hear all about it, but first, we're gonna hear about the company helping make this podcast possible. Webmasters is being brought to you thanks to the generous support of Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker. They specialize in helping people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. And what qualifies as an internet business? Basically any type of web-based company, SaaS apps, Amazon FBAs, e-commerce stores, content websites, and even domain portfolios. Basically, if you've got a business that's generating revenue using the internet, you've got yourself 
yourself in internet business. And if you're interested in selling that business, you've got a great partner in Latona's. The expert team at Latona's specializes in helping internet entrepreneurs sell their companies. Oh, and they also help people buy companies. In fact, if you'd like to see a listing of all the companies they're helping sell right now, you can find it on their website, latonas.com. That's L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. These days, search is a core part of the web. But that's only because the web is enormous. With so many pages, nobody would ever be able to find anything without a good search engine. In contrast, the early web wasn't like that. It was small and navigable without search. But as the web grew, finding stuff became harder. That problem is what interested people like this episode's guest, Eric Selberg, who at the time was a graduate student at the University of Washington. And even though search engines seem like an obvious solution to the growing problem of finding content online, that wasn't actually the case. Remember that the early internet wasn't just the web, not that it is today, but before the World Wide Web existed, content on the internet was much more spread out across different protocols and networks and services. One of the main things that the web did is it took all of these kind of, some legit, but a number of also ran protocols so just wiped them out and said, okay, here's how to find something, right? And here's a standard thing, that URL, which was really awesome. It's like, here's a standard way to identify a protocol and a host name and a location to find something. And here's a way to have documents where you can have lots of URLs to just go and find things. And then here's you know HTTP, which was kind of the dominant protocol that, that came out with that. Just, here's a way to get it. And so suddenly you could share things much more easily. You could find things much more easily. Every university kind of had their own system. They all went away. They all got replaced by the web. And so suddenly, because we're all on a kind of a standard infrastructure of HTTP, things like search engines become really easy and kind of the right thing to do. So how did people find stuff back in the pre and early web days? I mean, at the time, here was what my advisor, Oren, was working on. The Oren Eric references here is Oren Etzioni, who was Eric's PhD advisor at the University of Washington and eventually his partner in Metacrawler. He was a big planning guy. And planning is a robotics concept where you have a task and you're trying to figure out from your current state to the end state what steps you have to do to achieve it. A common thing pre-search, pre-internet, is, oh, I really want to find a paper by, by so-and-so. Again, this is very academic. Today, we're just like, we'll just search and you're done. Well, back then, this was a doctorate thesis by one of my peers, which would be, well, let's assume that the person who wrote this paper is an academic. Okay, then let's, you know, use this thing called finger. Kind of sounds sort of inappropriate nowadays, but you could finger a, a email address to see if the person was at an institution. Right? And, and Finger would say, yep, this email is a legit email. And so we'd say, well, let's try fingering at UW, at MIT, New Chicago. And, oh, we got a hit at MIT. Great. Let's see if this person has an FTP repository. Oh, look, we see something that says FTP colon machine name. So let's list that FTP directory and see if there's anything that looks like papers. Oh, look, we, we find something that's a .ps file, so that must be a paper. Right? So let's grab that. So for pre-search... It was actually a whole lot of like software robotics planning to try and actually get the paper. Whereas nowadays we're like, 
Well, simply have a spider, download everything, have a link to it, dump it in the index, and you're done. Right? <laughs> Sounds still simple nowadays. But really, that's where people were because everything was so fragmented. I mean, it could have been an FTP site. It could have been a waste site. Again, it could have been a gopher. Uh, you know, the person maybe had information. It was known as a profile, which you get by fingering. Maybe it's in uh, some other place, et cetera. So really, you have all these tools which are, are trying to deal with all of these different services. And they're all created by grad students, too, just, just for fun, because we all don't have anything to do. And you're trying to unify them. Okay, so the web comes along, creates a standard protocol for content. And how does that lead to web search as opposed to that robotics model you were just describing? The web was a couple thousand pages, and, and primarily it was .edu sites, right? It's like, who has a comm site? Well, that'd be DEC, right? <laughs> so, so the tech houses back in the day, like DEC and uh, HP, there aren't any businesses online yet because there isn't any customers aside from like grad students and whatnot. So it was really a lot of .edu sites and some government sites, and things started to grow. Okay. Well, well, once it starts to grow and you can't remember all these sites in your head, the first thing people did was they said, hey, uh, let's, let's make some directories. And like the most famous one that lasted was Yahoo, which came out of Stanford, right? Which is effectively kind of more of a, of a wiki-style directory where they tried to have various taxonomies and you could just kind of find stuff via Yahoo. And it just kind of got critical mass and it was easy to use and it worked. And so that kind of stuck. Uh, the problem is, very quickly, the browse model also didn't scale. And so a number of people who'd been, been working on various search technologies, which is not so much web search, but like computer search, right? Let me find files on my computer system. They said, hey, let, let's just apply the same technology to the web. Quite literally, this is how we thought, and at the time it worked, okay? Let's just download the web to our computer, meaning our desktop computer, and index it, and then provide a searchable interface to that. And this seems crazy nowadays, but back when the web was order of magnitude, like, you know, a million pages, this was very doable. And in fact, that was what the first search engines were. And that obviously wasn't scalable. What were some of the problems those early search engines ran into? The model of download the web to a, a decently powered desktop class computer was what we did. Now, the number of problems with this as the web was really on an exponential growth rate, as opposed to all of our desktop computers, which uh, were the very best of 1991, but not growing nearly as fast, it kind of overwhelmed things. The other thing which we all didn't realize back in the day is this thing called operational excellence, right? So when you're a grad student, you put something up there and it kind of works. And if it crashes or it goes down or whatever, you're a grad student. Who cares, right? You're not getting paid. This isn't your job. You're busy just kind of playing around to try and see, well, gee, is this interesting enough where I could write a paper about it? You're not actually trying to provide something that's a fundamental utility to the world. And so a number of the early search engines, you know, there was Webcrawler out of University of Washington, there was Lycos out of Carnegie Mellon, there was Inktomi out of Berkeley. These are all grad student wear. Things would go down all the time. Webcrawler in particular, the Achilles heel was uh, Brian initially used his desktop, but that became overwhelming. So then he used his office mate's desktop to do all the work. The office mate kind of got cranky about what he had to do his work. So um, they, they eventually had to try and figure out funding and, and all that stuff. 
So grad students, we were all learning the hard way how to keep our services up because search engines became very quickly a critical part of the web to find anything. Eric is pointing to an interesting phenomenon here that's easy to overlook with everything else that was changed by the growing popularity of the internet and the World Wide Web. Specifically, as the web became more popular, people began accessing websites 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The organizations operating websites, whether those were grad students or companies or churches, had to transition from serving people during quote unquote normal business hours to supporting people 24 seven. That requires lots of additional resources. That was like a new thing for all of us. We're like, oh, wow, we have to keep this running 7 by 24, but we're grad students, <laughs> right? That's um, And even companies were like, you know what? We have to keep this running 7 by 24 and people care? Really? Like we can't just take an outage randomly to do something? Nope. Now, of course you have to do this. But back in the day, this was like a new thing for us. We, we never really thought through what actual operations meant. Of course, the eventual result of search becoming a critical part of the fast-growing consumer internet was that businesses would eventually come along to replace graduate students as the operators of search engines. Companies start to emerge. There was uh, InfoSeek, one of the early ones. Of course, AltaVista had a deck, which started off as a showcase for their uh, the biggest deck computers you could buy. Google's also grad student wear until it turned into a company. You can hear all about one of those companies building the first truly consumer-grade internet search engines in the very first episode of Webmasters, where we got to talk with Louis Monnier, who created AltaVista inside of DEC, DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation. You can also learn about Steve Kirsch building the first search engine that began as a business rather than an academic experiment when he launched InfoSeek. That's Webmasters episode number 58. But before consumer grade business focused search engines existed with their more powerful servers and much, much, much bigger budgets, uh, especially compared to what grad students had, Eric developed a particularly innovative way to overcome the general unreliability of of early search engines. Metacrawler was my invention and my uh, project for my doctorate thesis at the University of Washington. Metacrawler was created actually as a secondary offering, which is I didn't actually create my own search engine. What I created was something that could query all the other search engines and then merge the results. And the main purpose of Metacrawler was at any given time, two or three of all these search engines are down. This is back in the day when you know four or four page was the most common page on the internet. Things would just be down, or things would move, and you'd click on this link and you wouldn't get anything. And so Metacrawler was this layer on top of search engines to make them more reliable. That was it, right? And it turned out just doing that was a hard enough project that uncovered lots of interesting things on its own. So that, that's kind of when we started to do, what does parallel search look like? How do you combine different algorithms? How do you merge results? Uh, how do you do different uh, query types? Like, you know, how do you do phrase search in a meta engine when they all don't support it natively? Back in the day, phrases? What's that? I mean, everything was primarily an and search. So this word and, that word and, that word. Again, it looks very much like computer search, right? So we just used the tools that we had available as opposed to doing anything fancy. That was really kind of the genesis of where Metacrawler came. And again, it's, it's trying to fill that need of 
everything's being run by grad students. We don't know what we're doing. So here's some automation on top of that to make it a little bit easier to use. So you weren't so much solving the search problem, you were solving the problem of search engines being unreliable. And I'm guessing, you know, judging by Metacrawler's success, people really needed that problem solved on the early web. Yeah, exactly. Back in the day when the web was growing, it's just to like get another search engine with the really convenient URL of metacrawler.cs.washington.edu. But people would, would use that. They'd bookmark it and go. We had to get a, approval from a number of people at UW to get metacrawler.com. That was like, oh my God, you, you, you can't get a .com address at a .edu. I mean, bureaucracy. So, but people would know that URL, they would find it. And a lot of my early testers were from Australia and New Zealand, which I thought was fascinating. I know this because back in the day, the mail to tag was introduced. So you could click on a link and it open up a, a window to mail. And this was when things were safe, right? <laughs> you didn't have spam and bots and, you know, people stealing information. So the Metacrawler page, you know, oh, by Eric Selberg and Ordizioni, both of those were mail to tags. And since I was listed first, people could send me feedback, which they did. And a lot of it was great. I would put up a new version of Metacrawler, it would mostly work. And I'd go home for the day, you know, around 5, 6 p.m. Pacific time, which is right when Asia Pacific, in particular Australia, New Zealand, is getting up. And they would discover what I'd screwed up. And then they would promptly tell me uh, <laughs> what I screwed up. This was kind of the early days of learning about customer feedback and, and really understanding what it means to be operationally sound. Back in the day, early precursors of operational access protocols, I was in a 14-person office, right? And so at the time, Metacrawler was now on uh, four deck boxes. You could kind of call it because usually somebody would be in the office except at like three in the morning. But even then, we're grad students. Hey, can you please push the number three box reset button? So my protocol was if it got stuck, which it did, just reboot the computer. Just kind of reset. It would reboot it. Metacrawler would come back up. We're good to go. Really basic stuff. But it worked. As you can probably imagine, asking your fellow grad students back in the office to reboot the servers wasn't a viable long-term strategy for a web service that was exponentially increasing in popularity. As Eric quickly outgrew his meager grad student resources, he had to start thinking about commercializing what he'd built. However, at the time, commercializing web software built inside universities was a new phenomenon and came with its own series of unique challenges. All the universities around the country don't understand this web thing, right? And all of them do have this organization that does deal with commercializing stuff in university. However, it's geared for two things. Number one, it's geared for books, so copyright stuff. So you publish a book. Lots of professors do this, students do this. They understand that process. Number two, it's geared for royalties, typically medical. So you create a new protein, you create a new drug. So again, every research hospital puts stuff out there and university technology transfer groups are really good at going, okay, we will help you go through the patent process because that's what matters to patent something and then you sell royalties. They don't know what to do with software, <laughs> right? They're like, is that a trademark? Is that copyright? Patent? And we're like, no, it's software. You sell it. Some people understood selling software. Like, again, you used to be able to buy a copy like Microsoft Word. You go to the store, you buy Microsoft Word, you have it. Nobody understands what a service is. Like, you just run it. 
okay, um, so what gets transferred to a company? Nobody knows. And so my predecessor, Brian, he got out lucky. He sold Webcrawler to AOL for a million bucks. And he got away with it because he was like, hey, I did this thing in my own time, not part of my doctorate work. Some company wants to buy it. Can I sell it? And they're like, is it bad? No, it's software. So it's copyright? Well, no, it changes. Who wants to buy it? AOL? Who are they? Yeah, okay, this does not seem worth our time. Let's sign off. You're good. You enjoy. Good for you. Get some pizza money. Price tag comes up a million bucks. They're like, okay, we screwed that one up. (laughs) I was not so lucky. So now all the universities understand this game and that there's a lot of money in software and services. Uh, and so again, a couple of the early folks were able to kind of make out pretty well. Most of the rest of us, um, the universities came in and said, hey, we'll help transfer your software to some company and we'll take a big cut out of that is the way things ended up working. And so you did uh, eventually bring it out of the university, right? Uh, though you didn't make as much money as you maybe would have liked. Is, is that what I'm hearing? We got a nice house out of it, but a number of us suddenly got paper rich and then paper poor. So very few of us went paper rich to still rich. A number of folks didn't. We had no clue what we were doing. We're all experiencing something and we don't know what it is. And we think it's permanent forever. And the answer is no. I mean, people seem to forget the first dot-com bust of uh, 2000. It was real. I was there. Uh, good times. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what I've heard. <laughs> but before the proverbial wheels came off of, well, the entire internet, what was it like going from a graduate student project to building a tech company? Uh, for Metacrawler, we followed a pretty common path, which is, A lot of venture capitalists started trolling the computer science building, looking for stuff to invest in. So it's happening at Washington, at Stanford, at Berkeley, at CMU, all the places, because the VCs are like, oh, wow, this internet thing is going to be huge. We're seeing stuff come out of university. Let's get in early. And so they were just throwing money at anything. And so what happened with with Metacrawler is we put together Metacrawler and actually three other technologies that other grad students had created. There was a uh, shopping engine, there was a homepage finder, and I forget the fourth. The homepage finder and, and the fourth one never made it out of UW. Uh, it's like, okay, we're licensed, but nothing ever, ever happened with it. The shopping engine turned into a kind of shopping link on the second page of the Excited Home commerce engine, because Excited Home eventually bought the company we, we created. Uh, and then Metacar was still sitting on site doing stuff company that we founded called NetBot, we were trying to figure out how to monetize. Like we had customers, but we didn't know how to make money because if you're a primary search engine, you just put ads. That was straightforward. But we're like, well, are we putting up all their ads? Having a page with like 12 ads doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Right. And these were back when they were all like the, you know, one inch by four inch banner ads. So we kind of swarmed the page. And uh, judging by the fact that Metacrawler didn't become the size of Google, uh, I'm guessing that didn't work out very well, right? Uh, so we were really struggling on, on how to make money. And eventually we decided you know, not to do this. And another company called GoToNet, which is kind of doing a portal, they had an idea of how to make money. So they ended up licensing the technology from the startup. And then uh, when I graduated, uh, both I and my advisor went over to this company for a year or so 
to kind of really understand how they could figure out how to make money, and we had no idea. That's really kind of how that happened. But one thing I, I did do, I kind of recognized this, is I, I didn't actually join the startup as a founder. I wanted to finish my doctorate. So it's like, okay, I'll be there for tech transfer. And I'll, I'll take a bunch of shares, but I'm going to go back and, and finish. I don't really know if this has enough legs. And I also realized I was turning into pure operations, right? It's like, yeah, I built a thing. It's, it works. It's great. Well, I want to work on the next thing, but nope. I'm still stuck just fixing bugs and making it work a little bit better. I'm like, I, I don't want to spend my life doing that. I definitely wanted to finish, which I did a couple of years later. And that was probably a, a good call on my part, given where things went. Are you surprised by that outcome? Are you surprised Metacrawler didn't succeed as a business? I didn't think Metacrawler would last. It actually lasted a lot longer than I thought it would. But once there started to be consolidation in the industry, meaning we went from like 10 search engines down to eventually three, and effectively now we're down to one. It's like, there's really no need for a meta crawler. It's like the operational excellence problem solved. Relevance problem, pretty solved. So meta crawler is not really providing anything new, right? So that value goes away as the core search engines uh, figure it out. Um, also, there's not a whole lot of extra money to be made because you have to pay the core search engines for their service, and then you have to make money on top of it. And this is a razor-thin margin business. So I was like, yeah, between the money and the utility, it's, it's not going to last. So that was kind of one of the reasons why I'm like, yeah, I need to let this one go. It's great for now, but it, it's not the long-term thing. I think so many people kind of stuck with their baby until it was too late. The hard thing we have to kind of understand for a piece of technology, is this a five-year piece of technology, 10-year, or, or is this like a 50-year piece of technology? Most technology is in the five-year camp. And so you don't want to bank on this for life if it's really going to become obsolete and supplanted in five years. What you just heard Eric talking about is a critical entrepreneurial lesson. Hit the rewind button and listen to it again. Most new technologies are what we might call gap filler technologies. They're short-term solutions to problems, or more accurately, I'd say they're solving problems in inefficient ways. A lot of the entrepreneurial solutions people develop ultimately fall into this category, including Metacrawler. Basically, Eric looked at the search engine problem and said, I can solve this by building a meta search engine that aggregates results from across all the problematic search engines. Sure, that was one way of solving the problem of unreliable search engines, but there were other ways that were ultimately better. You know, like the strategy another grad student named Larry Page, along with his buddy Sergey Brin, were developing a bit further south of Eric. Speaking of Larry, he and I hung out at the web conference WWW97 in Santa Clara, which was miserable because they had problems with the budget. So all of our like lunch food was like spoiled with bad mayonnaise and whatnot. So Larry was just going around complaining about everything and he was just unhappy. Uh, and I'm like, okay, so you're going around saying you've got something much better than lab in Stanford. Well, well, why don't you do something with it and show it off to the world, you punk, right? I mean, all these people presenting papers, they've done the work. That's why they're on stage and you're in the audience with me, man. So, so why don't you go do something? And it turned out he did. Uh, so. Yeah, I'd, I'd say he did. He, he definitely showed you. Um, 
So can you talk about Google a bit and maybe the kind of the modern search industry? Did you ever think search would become as lucrative an industry as it is? Um, I think we all knew it would be profitable. I don't think we had ideas that it was going to be where Google is today profitable. Or I mean, they've basically cornered the market. So, I mean, at the time, we were trying to figure out how to survive with display ads, which were not terribly profitable. And it was really two things turned it into the money press. One was GoTo, which Yahoo acquired. And, and GoTo was basically a, a 100% paid listing thing. So they said, hey, we're, we're going to create a search engine where people want to pay for being there. Now, they didn't really have any guidelines around what to do. So it was basically the more you pay, the higher you show up in search results when there's a hit. And so Yahoo picked that up and said, wow, this is great. And this is how we're going to kind of make an ads business that adds relevance and, and sponsored content as opposed to these display ads, which everybody... They weren't clicking on, and these are all the people who still hadn't created an ad blocker to get rid of them. This is the, the dawn of the ad blocking technology. And then what Google did is they said, you know what? We love the technology of having paid for links, but we're actually going to get rid of links if nobody's clicking on them. Because it turns out if, if you bid for a link, you say, I'm going to bid $20 to be the top result. If nobody clicks on you, you actually don't get charged. So what Google says is, hey, we're going to make people optimize for our revenue. So there has to be a click. We don't care how much you bid. If nobody's clicking on it, you're wasting our time. And so that was the genesis of the ads model, where it compelled advertisers to make relevant ads that get clicked on, which means they're going to use their budget and uh, Google's going to rake in all that money. And that was the genius of it. And then here we are today where Google search is still bankrolling the, the entire Alphabet uh, empire and doing quite well. I don't think I would have said Google's going to be one of the top 10 companies in the world back in the day, but uh, search is going to be lucrative, yeah. And what do you think about there basically being only one player in the search industry? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? It's effectively one with a challenger that's got deep pockets, which, which is Microsoft. And that's reasonably okay. A lot of markets end up looking like that, where there is the dominant player, and then there is somebody who's trying to keep the dominant player honest. You look at Intel and AMD, same general dynamic. So generally, I'm, I'm okay with that. And, and the other thing which has happened is, and this has been true for about a decade now, in the search world, you know, both teams are really working hard to get like a 0.02% improvement in relevance. I mean, it's really minor. I mean, they're still working, they're still publishing papers, and, and they have to, but you're not seeing the leaps and bounds improvements you did during, you know, the early days of the web. The places where search and monetization have been changing and, and where the interests are have been changing because search has effectively turned into a solved problem. I'm not trying to make light of, you know, everything solved, but for what most people need, it kind of works. And so this is why you see a lot of the investment that both Google and Microsoft are making are not in core search as much, but in different niches or things like the cloud, things like uh, mobile, uh, et cetera. So has Google basically taken the entire web search opportunity, uh, unless, of course, you're a company with a pocketbook the size of Microsoft's? In other words, is there more innovation left in web search or is Google going to continue to own it forever? I imagine that's going to continue. If we're in a different country, I might have a radically different answer. If we're in Germany, say, I might say, yeah, they're, they're both crappy. 
<laughs> right? If I'm in, in Kazakhstan, I'm like, oh, we have nothing. So I do think there is still opportunity in, in kind of the non-first tier markets from, from the U.S. point of view. When I was at Microsoft, MSN search at the time now being worldwide was number five. Google was number one. AltaVista was number two. Yahoo, number three. And number four was Naver. Most people have ever heard of Naver. That's because it's the dominant by like 98% or something like that search engine slash browser in South Korea. So if you're in South Korea, you've got Naver, but they're nowhere else. So just all of South Korea was enough to make us number five worldwide. You'll have things like that where a local player can dominate the market because they cater to the local interests. So, so that's still something other places of the world have. There you have it from one of the earliest pioneers of web search. Maybe don't bother picking a fight with Google for web search dominance, at least not in a large market, but you might have a chance going niche. Hey, maybe you could create a podcast search engine that always ranks webmasters number one in every category. Just, you know, throwing that out as a suggestion. But if you don't have time for that right now, there are other things you can do to help us out. Start by subscribing to Webmasters on your podcasting app of choice so you're sure to get the next episode as soon as it's released. While you're there, be sure to leave a nice review and don't forget to share this episode with a friend or stranger or really anyone you think might like it. If you have any thoughts or feedback about the episode, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Webmasters Pod. I'm on Twitter too, at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also write lots of articles about business, startups, and entrepreneurship. You can find them on my website. It's AaronDinan.com. A quick thanks to this episode's guest, Eric Selberg, for taking the time to share his story in the story of Metacrawler. I also want to thank our sound engineer, Ryan Higgs, and our sponsor, Latonas. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, you should start by checking out latonas.com. And if you're interested in more great stories about web entrepreneurs and the things they've built that have shaped our lives, then stick around for the next episode of Webmasters. Until then, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye.